Well, in our story this morning, we enter into a foreign world, a world in which handkerchiefs and aprons are infused with power and exorcisms are the expectation. It is a world in which natural and supernatural realities coexist and influence each other. A handkerchief that has touched Paul's skin sends demons and diseases packing. The physical affects the spiritual. It is a world familiar to everyone in the story, but completely foreign to us. Neither Paul nor the seven sons of Siva even bat an eye at the mention of spiritual beings. But to us, this is the stuff of fantasy. We dress up as demons and walk door to door collecting candy because we consider it a joke. If spiritual activity is real, whether good or bad, then we consider it to still exist only in uncivilized parts of the world like Texas or Florida. (laughs) It's because we're the children of modernity, right? We believe science and medicine can either explain or fix all things. And yet science is unable to actually provide any commentary on the existence of supernatural causes. As Tim Keller points out in his Reason for God, natural causes are the only kind its methodology can address. A scientist who makes a comment on the supernatural has moved out of the realm of science and into the realm of philosophy. And what we know of the world, the slice of reality in which scientists can actually speak with any authority before they have to step into the realm of philosophy, is an incredibly small percentage of all the data that is available. Richard Panic uh, wrote a book in 2011 called The 4% Universe that tells the story of the winner of the 2011 Nobel Prize in Physics. And in that book, he relays this scientific finding. The major component of the universe, making up 73% of its substance, is called dark energy. So-called because no one has the faintest idea of what it really is. Next, with 23%, comes dark matter, so-called partly because you can't see it with a telescope but also because there are only hints and suppositions as to what this mysterious, suppos- this mysterious substance might be, which leaves only 4% of the universe composed of regular matter, such as p- stars, planets, and people. The overwhelming majority of the universe is, who knows? It is unknown for now and possibly forever. And the philosopher Alvin Plantinga likens the scientific rejection of a supernatural act of God, like raising someone from the dead, to a drunk man searching for his keys in the dark. He writes, this argument is like a drunk who insists on looking for his lost keys only under the street light on the grounds that the light is better there. In fact, it would go the drunk one better. It would insist that because the keys would be hard to find in the dark, they must be under the light. They must be in the 4% that we can see. And with only 4% of the universe observable, not known necessarily, just observable, Plantinga is saying that it's folly to deny the presence of the supernatural based on scientific observation. If we can't see something with our eyes within the 4% of the universe that we can actually observe, then it must, be, it must not be possible. It must not exist. That's an abuse of science. It's not qualified to draw philosophical qualifi- conclusions. 
But nevertheless, we have been baptized into a world where we read about the supernatural and immediately our eyes begin rolling. The physical world has been emptied of its spiritual significance for us. And one scholar diagnoses us this way. Man has loved the world, but as an end in itself and not as transparent to God. He has done it so consistently that it has become something that is in the air. It seems natural for man to experience the world as opaque and not shot through with the presence of God. But the world we read about in our passage this morning is far from opaque. A handkerchief influences demons. The physical and the spiritual coexist, influencing and affecting one another. This is the world that Scripture presents, and it's hard to object based on only 4% of the data. If as a Christian you find this difficult to believe, I would suggest to you that Christianity is founded on this reality of our world, that the physical affects the spiritual. Our historic and orthodox creeds tell the story of a man who in the first century world was crucified on a Roman cross, that he died, he was buried in a tomb, and three days later he bodily raised, was bodily raised from the dead. He was able to be touched. He ate fish. He drank wine, right? He was able to be seen and touched with hands. And we believe that our sins against God are forgiven as a result of our faith in Him. As a result of His physical death and resurrection, we have spiritual freedom and forgiveness. The physical affecting the spiritual. The Bible presents to us a vision of the world that consists of more than meets the eye. It's not just water and clay, but angels and demons, God and Satan. And the way in which we live in this physical world has spiritual implications. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3 talks about the world as though it were a stage, an image that John Calvin picks up in his Institutes. And on this stage, God works through the church, through you and through me, to teach what he calls the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places about himself. If that is the case, then our lives are far more significant than we ever imagined. The rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places are watching. And what we do in the body has spiritual implications because the physical affects the spiritual. Now, it is true that healing through a hanky is exceptional. In fact, Luke admits so in his opening verse, verse 11. He writes that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. This was out of the ordinary. Take my socks off and wave them around all you want, and all you will get were fragrant aromas. The use of handkerchiefs and aprons was for a limited time only, intended to reinforce the truth and authority of Paul, of what Paul was preaching in the early days of the gospel spreading throughout the Greco-Roman world. But God has given us physical means by which we may regularly experience spiritual realities. These are called the sacraments. Through the waters of baptism and the, the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper, through these physical substances, we participate in spiritual realities. They're called the ordinary means of grace. Not ordinary in their significance, but ordinary in how frequent we should and get to observe them. A person is baptized only once during their lifetime, but eats the Lord's Supper far more frequently 
We're going to eat this spiritual food together in just a little while. And the early church participated in this sacrament every time they gathered, at least weekly and sometimes probably more frequently than that. The frequent, or you might say ordinary, participation in this meal is determined by its significance, right? If it were merely a symbol of our unity as believers, there's no need to eat this meal with much frequency. You may choose to do so, but it would not be out of necessity. It would not be because your soul hungers for this spiritual food like your body craves a meal three times a day. But a proper understanding of this meal creates a longing in the believer's soul. For this bread and wine are not merely physical substances, but convey spiritual nourishment to those who eat in faith. John Calvin, the father of Presbyterianism, spilled much ink writing about the sacraments because he truly believed, as should we, that spiritual grace is conveyed to the person who partakes in these physical realities in faith. In his short treatise on the Lord's Supper, Calvin writes this, The substance of the sacraments is the Lord Jesus, and the efficacy of them the graces and blessings which we have by his means. The efficacy of the supper is to confirm to us the reconciliation which we have with God through our Savior's death and passion, the washing of our souls which we have in the shedding of his blood, the righteousness which we have in his obedience. In short, the hope of salvation which we have in all that he has done for us. Hence, we conclude that two things are presented to us in the supper. Jesus Christ as the source and substance of all good. And secondly, the fruit and efficacy of his death and passion. What Calvin is saying is that in eating the bread and drinking the wine, often called the body and blood of Jesus, in eating these physical substances, your soul is feeding on the resurrected Jesus Christ. The bread and the wine are not Jesus, but they point us to the spiritual benefit that is conveyed in them, Jesus' death and resurrection and our forgiveness and new life through him. In eating these physical substances, the faith of the believer is strengthened so that she becomes more convinced of what Christ has accomplished on her behalf and more emboldened to confess Jesus and cling to him in good times as well as bad, in the midst of temptation and trial, in in the darkness of doubt and uncertainty, and in the suffering that we all experience in the body. And Jesus, in his love for us, graciously gave us this meal so that even after his ascension into heaven, even in his physical absence from us, he could still feed us like a father, like a brother, and so strengthen our faith. In leaving us, he made arrangements for our ongoing life in him. He gave us a meal to eat And he sent to us the Holy Spirit so that we might be assured of the Father's love for us and learn to live into the reality of our redemption. In John 14, Jesus promised to not leave us as orphans, and he hasn't, nor will he. In our eating of the body and blood of our resurrected Lord, we are convicted of our sin, reminded of our forgiveness, 
and empowered by the Holy Spirit to live new lives in Jesus. We become like the Christians at the end of our passage this morning, willing to follow Jesus at great personal loss to ourselves. Ephesus was a a city with a great number of people who dabbled in the occult. They practiced magic and through secretive spells sought to manipulate the spiritual realm. But Luke tells us in verse 19 that when these magicians experienced the exceeding power of Jesus, they brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of these books and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. They set fire to their previous life in order to put it in their past forever. It went up in flames at great loss to themselves, but their loss was in actuality a gain and they knew it. Because giving up what is false, they gained one who is true. Giving up what appears strong, they gained one who is actually strong, even though he appears weak. They gained Jesus Christ, who through the weakness of the cross became more powerful than every power in this world, whether physical or spiritual. In his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul put the greatness of Jesus Christ this way when he prayed that the Ephesians might know the immeasurable immeasurable power of God's greatness toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at uh, at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Paul, and all of Scripture for that matter, are opening our imagination to see that this world contains more than can be observed by the naked eye. It contains angels and demons, God and Satan. And the Christian life is a battle against these spiritual forces. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But take heart, because Jesus is greater than them all. He triumphed over them when he was raised from the dead, and his spirit now dwells in you. He is not a statue or an idol that needs to be fed by you. He needs nothing from you. But He is God, and you depend on Him for all things. And He graciously feeds you. In fact, He has given you a meal to eat so that you might be strengthened in your fight against sin and the temptations of Satan. This is that meal. It is a physical substance that through the power and presence of the risen Jesus Christ conveys to you spiritual grace. May you eat it today in this faith and rejoice while doing so. For in your eating and in your drinking, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are learning about the mercy of God, that he would extend grace and forgiveness to a people utterly undeserving of it. May God our Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, keep you in his Son, Jesus Christ strengthening and establishing you in faith until one day you shall see him as he is, for you will be like him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.